Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Culture Shock Podcast. I'm your host, Dave, and today we'll be doing something just a little bit different than our normal programming. There is no guest today, or rather, I have multiple guests today. And by that, I mean my guest for today's episode is you, or is you by proxy. See, I recently completed another solar return, and I am of the ripe old age of 41. And what I used to do on my birthday is I would make a list of things I learned over my life. When I turned 37, it was 37 things, and last year was 40 things. And I thought about doing that again this year, but the more I thought about it, the more it felt like I'd be kind of repeating a lot of the same things over and over again. Uh, at a certain point, the you know certainly as the number increases, you can imagine that there will be certain lessons that have kind of stayed the same, static. And, and of course, there will be new things as well. So rather than making a social media post, of which I use less and less every given day, I decided to do to use this this platform in a different way than I normally do. And in fact, you know, in previous podcasts, I was a lot more interactive with our listeners and I uh, facilitated a lot more of a back and forth than this podcast sort of allows for. So I thought rather than doing a list of things I'd learned over the years and in an effort to re-engage my audience and to interact with them in some way, I put out the, the feelers to a few friends, former guests, etc. and ask them to send me questions. What are some topics that you might want me to listen might want to listen to me talk about? What are some things that perhaps I could provide my own personal insights on that might be intriguing to you or might open a train of thought that you hadn't explored before or or that you strongly disagree with. That's okay too in the spirit of conversation, isn't that what this is all about? So I have 15 questions, no particular order, that I'm going to answer, address, talk about, offer my perspective. Some are very light and some might get a little personal uh, and we'll explore them all. And in the process of them, maybe we can all come away with this with um, our minds revigorated, uh, some perspectives shared that you might not have thought about and the like. Now, I do want to say this, and this is a really important thing. I'm not coming at this from any sort of perspective of authority or, uh, and certainly when we delve into realm, some of the magic questions uh, that, that I'm speaking from any sort of position of knowing the right answer with a capital R. Uh, this is really more my perspective on things. This is some things I may know very intimately. I might feel like I have more authority to speak on, such as when we go across questions about film. Other topics are more avant-garde. They're a little bit more ambiguous and really it's just me taking a stab in the dark and approaching it from the way that I best feel that I can. And at the end of the day, what this is really for is a way for me to talk with you. And if this is a success and this is something that you all enjoy listening to, I'll do these again. Not all the time, but maybe, you know, four times a year, once a quarter, we'll just do a little mailbag, a Q&A, an AMA, whatever you want to call it, an opportunity for you, the listener, wherever you're at, to talk to me over here in sunny California and for me to offer my insights on a variety of topics. Uh, if in the listening, in the process of listening to this show, you feel the need to reach out, Maybe uh, I missed something. Maybe I said something incorrectly. Maybe you just feel like the topic requires more than this podcast allows for. In which case, uh, you can hit me up on, at Dave Oscuro on Twitter. It's pretty much the only social media I'm using these days. And even then, fairly lightly. Um, 
But if if there's a topic or something that comes up in the process of this podcast that you feel needs further exploration, that would be where to reach me at. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into our mailbag, our Q and A, our Ask Me Anything. Dave Escuro make another making another solar return on this episode of the Culture Shock Podcast. So I also decided that I'm not going to reveal who asked the following questions. Um, partially because I didn't have time to ask who wanted to be revealed and I want to respect people's privacy. And also because, again, the idea of this podcast is to feel more like a conversation between myself and you, the listener. And so I want to approach each question as though anyone could have asked it. So we'll just go in no particular order in, uh, of questions and we'll dive right into it. So question number one, this is a great one to start with. You're a pro wrestler. What is your entrance music? And an interesting thing about that is that uh, for the last several years, I have two to three, I'll call them waking dreams that I engage right before bed. These are somewhere between traditional dreaming and daydreaming. They're where my mind naturally wanders to. And one of these sort of makeshift worlds that I return to on a nightly basis is that of pro wrestling. Pro wrestling for a lot of people is like a it's a male soap opera. It's a it's a silly spectacle. But for me, as someone who grew up in a small town and that really didn't have a lot of comings and goings and things to do, when the pro wrestling circuit came to town, it was a big deal. Pro wrestlers from both WCW, NWA, WWF used to come into town and they used to perform at this place that was very ironically called the Coliseum. It was very much little more than a bingo hall. Otherwise, it held um, rifle conventions and uh, flea markets. And it was just big enough to fit a wrestling rink and some additional extra chairs. And it was one of the things I just remember fondly growing up. And so as an adult, as a grown man, I still follow wrestling. I have a few friends in the wrestling industry. A couple of them have been on the show. Matt Seidel, he just had a birthday as well. Happy birthday to Matt. And so uh, this is a topic that I, I have a great, have put a lot great deal of thought into, to be honest with you. I've thought about what if I, if another timeline had diverged from my path and I had not become a filmmaker and I had studied to learn to become a pro wrestler, what would my entrance be? And it's changed over the years, as one could imagine. I'm sure for many of you, as you imagine yourself in dream roles and jobs and careers, the, the evolution of said dreaming changes as you gain, you gain age and wisdom and just get older. So I used to imagine myself coming out to a song called Devils Never Cry from the, from the video game devil may cry and uh it starts off with this very eerie sort of foreboding choral number before entering into a pretty blistering uh, electronic electronica sort of music um it's very intense it's very heavy it's sort of like electric metal uh, so that used to be the theme that i thought about all the time i thought how cool would that be i just i can imagine the whole entrance and you know like a cool video on the video screen of these very obscure images and symbolism and then you come out to like the big raucous of rock electronic music to sort of lead you out but more recently i kind of have been imagining i've been dreaming of coming out to something a little simpler and one of my favorite songs of all time is the misfits die die my darling 
And I thought that would be a cool song to come out to because one of the things about pro wrestling that I enjoy so much is that the best performers are playing a version of themselves turned up to 11. And if I were a pro wrestler and I were to imagine myself in this role, if I had dedicated myself to the years of training and the pain one goes through and the travel, I'd want my character to be an extension of myself. I wouldn't consider myself a natural performer and therefore I would feel the most comfortable if it was just me turned to 11. And so what better song to lead me in than a song that I love and a genre that I love and paying homage to my punk rock roots and my love of horror movies and all things scary. And um, when I was a kid, there used to be a wrestler. He was a Canadian wrestler who got famous wrestling in Mexico called Vampiro. And he actually in the 90s had the band The Misfits come out with him to the ring. Uh, he didn't He didn't come out to that song specifically, but it was this convergence of these two things that I love, punk rock, horror movies, and wrestling, I guess three things. And I, I was there for it. I was all in on it. I thought it was so exciting. And so if I were a wrestler, short answer long, I think that the song that I would come out to would be the Misfits song from the album Earth AD, Die, Die, My Darling. Question number two. And we're going to go from sort of a lighthearted question to something that might require a lot more uh, conversation. It's it's far more personal. And that question is, have I ever experimented with my sexuality? Now, I, you know, the short answer is yes, in some regard. Um, I think everyone does. There's less openness when it comes to the idea of men being unsure about their sexuality. I think that when we're the way we're raised in this Western culture, we're raised to be well, we're raised to be homo, uh, heterosexual, first and foremost. Uh, I mean, obviously, over the over the years, the acceptance of the gay community has grown and rightfully so. But certainly in the time that I was born, you were expected to be heterosexual and that was it. And there was no room for experimentation or uh, any sort of uh, spectrum in terms of one sexual uh, preference experiences. But when I when I was growing up, although there was this this sort of pressure to be strictly heterosexual. I didn't, as a young child, fit the mold of what one would expect. I was kind of, uh, you know, I had some trauma growing up. My parents had divorced. I was very unsure of myself. I was very um, prone for crying. Um, I was very introverted. And these are all things that in the culture that I grew up in would have been regarded as quote unquote gay. And there was other things in the culture that I grew up in, things of like blatant homophobia that we, at the time people didn't realize or recognize, but it was just embedded in everything that you heard around you. And so I bring all this up because I think that there are a lot of people who grow up in life being unsure. Not everyone has it figured out at an early age who they are. And I think that a lot of folks grew up similar to me where there was just no room to figure that stuff out, to figure yourself out, not only strictly in the realm of sexuality, but just in, in just as per, in terms of your personal identity. So growing up like that with this sort of contradictory pressure to be strictly heterosexual and to fit this dynamic of what a heterosexual man is, but then also being chastised for being more emotional, being more sensitive, being more artistic. I am a Pisces. 
and being called gay as an insult, I grew up very conflicted. I grew up very conflicted. Um, and so when I was in my late teens, I remember telling a very good friend of mine that I, I was wondering if I might be bisexual. Now, I'd never had any experiences um, with you know, sexual activity with men. And in fact, I didn't even really engage in sexual activity in the traditional sense until I was out of high school by choice. I that just wasn't a world I was comfortable within. Um, but I conflated my admiration for certain people with potential sexual attraction. Um, and so I, I, I certainly spent a lot of time questioning and being in my own head about it and wondering what this meant or what that meant, you know, that, you know, that you see memes online where they'll say, like, I saw one the other day that talked about, like, lesbian fashion is now the trend. And like the, the, the obvious joke is, ladies, is it gay to wear clothes? Um, I think that I think that a lot of folks growing up, they because of the environment that they grew up in, they spend a lot of time questioning uh, if they're honest with themselves. And I think that one should. Uh, frankly, I feel like one should at an earlier age when you in, in a supportive environment. Not mo a lot of people don't have luxury of that. So certainly in my own head, I I don't know if experiment is the correct term, but I certainly uh, was was debating and, and thinking and exploring within my own mind where my attraction lay. You know, from a physical standpoint, if I did, I eventually realized that I. I my, my sexual attraction lay predominantly with women um, and that appreciation for the male form was a natural thing and the experience of touching another male, hugging another male, um, having physical interaction with them is not a, does not denote one's sexual orientation. It's, it's, it's a natural way of sharing fellowship with one another. Um, and there's occasional times where I'd get drunk and I'd make out with a dude in front of people for shock value. Just going to be honest about that. Um, but I would say that by the time I was entering in my twenties, I'd kind of realized that I was just boring old heterosexual dude. And that's just kind of what I am. But, um, in terms of the question, I, I know that's sort of using the term experiment in a broad sense, but yeah, I think I, everyone at some level, um, wonders, explores, is uncertain, uh, even if it's in their own mind and certainly some people experiment in a physical sense. And I think that's awesome. And I, and I want to, and I say all this and I'm exposing a part of myself because I think it's really important for folks to feel comfortable expressing their history, uh, and their uncertainty and to recognize the normality of not being certain as to what your sexual orientation or your gender or your identity as a whole is like. And so I hope that people listen to this and they say, I experienced that or I am experiencing that. And it's normal. It's normal and it's healthy. And I, and I urge anyone to take stock of yourself throughout time because those things can change just like any facet of your identity can change. What you believe to be you, your truth, your reality one day may very well change over the course of 10, 20, 15, 30, 40, 50 years. It's okay. It's all right to take stock of oneself. It's okay to imagine scenarios of oneself and it's okay to like whatever it is that you like. Don't give a fuck what anyone else thinks. Be true to yourself 
And if experimenting is your way of figuring out who you are in this particular moment, then do so in a in a safe and trusting and open environment so that you could do it to the fullest extent of your ability and so that you can come to terms and find solidness and a foundation of who you are because that's only one facet of yourself and it's an important facet to build off of. I hope that answers the question. Maybe I talked a bit too much about it, but I'm just saying uh, I think we all do at some point or another. Next question. I'm sort of dovetailing from a different prospect of love um what why do we have a tendency to hurt those we love by being right i think there's a couple of things to explore this because i'm one of these people i'm certainly been i mean i'm sure if you talk to my exes over the years they would certainly say that i have a tendency to latch on to the concept of being right uh, whatever that means and So the first thing I would say about that is I think that when we find people that we love or we care about, I think oftentimes we misunderstand that loving someone means taking them for granted. Part of that's due to a comfort level that is built up with someone that you love. Uh, Some of your guard is down. Some of the politeness goes away. Uh, A more openness, which is good takes form, but sometimes that openness can turn into bluntness. From the aspect of hurting people, and I'm going to assume to some degree this is involving like an argument or a fight, I think what happens oftentimes is that because there is that comfort level with our loved ones, we tend to feel less hesitant to go for the jugular. We feel less reserved in speaking bluntly. And certainly when you factor in high emotions and hurt feelings and bruised egos, it's a very natural instinct to lash out. Hurt people hurt other people. That's just a strict reality of it. If you meet a person who has uh, bully tendencies or uh, or just has a, a wall up of anger, those people are oftentimes hurt people. And so I think, unfortunately, and, and we, you know, kind of touching on this a little bit when I was talking about folks experimenting with their sexuality, because many of us grow up in environments that are not safe for us, are not with parents who are understanding, if the parents are there at all, cultures that are understanding, if any semblance of culture is left to exist, uh, we oftentimes never find ways to heal those hurts. And then as we get older... We lash out because we transfer our desires to be loved and accepted and understood to our partners, and we don't always reciprocate that for them. Hurt people hurt other people. So I think that that tendency to hurt the ones we love by being right is spurred from a place of never feeling nurtured, never feeling listened to never feeling understood, never feeling placated even, never feeling like our opinions ultimately matter. And I think that this is especially true for men because you know, men tend to grow up with, again, this idea of being stoic and sheltered and sucking it up and don't cry. And, and these, these traumas build up and they tend to erupt in unhealthy manners. Then you factor in things like alcohol usage, drug usage, Those can only amplify our hurt, amplify our anger, amplify our desire to lash out. 
and who tends to be around us in those moments. It's our loved ones. And it takes a lot of unpacking to figure out a way to treat your loved one with more reverence than the stranger, more politeness than the, than the person walking across the street, to treat them with more care so that they don't become a hurt person who then hurts others. The other thing that I want to f- like want to sort of touch on is being right. And uh, I'm glad that the person who asked me this question put right in, in parentheses because it's ego. Our ego needs to be satiated. We need to feel important. We need to feel strong. And again, I'm going to touch back on, on male culture because it's what I know. Um, there's a lot of, yeah, man, there's just a lot of mistakes that I think our culture makes when it comes to raising men and this idea that this culture that we live in, men have predominantly power in this environment. And yet, in many regards, they're not allowed to express themselves in an open way. So you you have more power as far as society goes on a global sense, but on an individual sense, you're, you're, you're not allowed to express yourself in an open and honest way, which is damaging. So there's this strong, strong urge to be correct, be right, have the facts. You're the person who knows better. You're the person who has all the answers. And through that, through that being of right, we hope to fill a void in ourselves that would that should actually be filled through a connection, in my opinion, with the divine and the love and closeness of people around us not being right. Because the person who is right all the time stops learning, stops growing, isn't empathizing, isn't trying to understand your partner or your loved one's perspective, which makes you shrink. It makes you smaller as a person when you're unable to do that. And so I think it's really important to let go of this idea of being right. Learn. You don't need to be right. It's okay to not be right. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to make mistakes. In fact, the person who said me, gave me this question one time gave me some really important advice. They told me, I can fix any mistake you make. What I can't get you to do is to take the initiative and try to do the right thing yourself. And that stuck with me. This is relating to work, but it, it kind of it kind of applies to all things in life. And so I think it's less important about being right. I think we need to remove this insecurity that so many of us have about saying the right thing, doing the right thing, thinking the right thing, fitting in with the right group, and instead just be a sponge and be open, a white belt for life, learn. I think that if you approach life and arguments and discussions from that perspective, then you're less, you'll be less inclined to want to be right and therefore Potentially and hopefully, you'll be less inclined to be nasty or condescending or shitty to people you love as a way of projecting your own hurt and your own insecurities and your own doubts and to have someone share in your misery. Better, I think, to be open and empathetic and understanding and being okay with being wrong from time to time and listening it's really hard to hurt someone when you're listening. You know what I'm saying? Close your mouth, open your ears. Very few people are going to get hurt by that. 
And so I think it's a combination of, of, of growing up in societies that heaps damage upon us and no healthy outlet in which to express that and to heal from it with a combination of that building insecurities that we then feel like we have to, you know, overcome by just dominating someone else, be it that, be it a, a partner or a friend or whomever. So, you know, um, I would just say for if you find yourself in that position, and I have found myself in that position many, many times, I think that the best thing that one can do is to shut your mouth, open your eyes and ears, listen more, stop worrying about being right. You can learn what you'll learn by doing that will prove to you that you could never be right with a capital R. You could only be right-ish and you'll become more right. You become more knowledgeable. You become you have more expertise if you listen and and empathize and speak less. And in return, hopefully, you do less damage to the, those closest to you, the people whom you should be learning from. So um, all we can do is be a little bit better tomorrow than we were today. And so if you're finding yourself in that position, uh, make the conscious choice. Make the conscious choice to move away from that. Recognize that you do that. Recognize that you're dominating someone else to fulfill some void in your own life and work on it and uh, try to be kinder listen more next question should art be censored to fit cultural preferences i.e separating the art from the artist i've touched on this a little bit i think something is occurring lately in culture that i don't necessarily understand. Well, I guess I kind of understand it, but I don't agree with it, which is a lot of times those people who become great at something aren't always great at being people. If we're building off the last couple of questions, I think a lot of folks grow up in environments that do not foster openness, do not foster kindness and empathy. And a lot of times to be really great at something, you have to dedicate an, an unhealthy obsession to learning a craft. You've got to put hours upon hours upon hours to learn and to perfect, uh, whether you're a painter or a writer or a singer or whatever it may be, to get excellent at something. An ungodly amount of time has to be put into it. There are very few naturals in the world who just wake up one day and have the voice of an angel, right? Who who have the artistic skill of Picasso. Uh, most people have to dedicate time to that. And in the process of that obsession, oftentimes inspiration comes from places of hurt. Um, again, we're seeing some recurring themes, right? So I think that a lot of artists aren't always good people or, or well-adjusted people or healed people. And the reason that their art resonates so deeply with so many other folks is because they're sharing their pain. They're sharing their traumas. They're sharing an expression and an exposure of their soul. Now, when you think about the kind of person who's capable of doing that, and to do it with the level of skill that's required to be truly great at something, these are often not well-adjusted folks. And so what occurs is they're oftentimes uh, held to the moral standards of today and they don't measure up. 
You know, I think if you look at, uh, I said, I mentioned Picasso earlier. That's a great example. Womanizer, you know, not necessarily the nicest person. Um, Aleister Crowley, not necessarily the nicest person. Um, you, you know, you can look at sports figures, not always the nicest. But Michael Irving, you know, drug user, not always the nicest person uh, as a football player for those who don't know. So because of that, because especially when you're looking at artists from the past, they're not going to measure up to the norms of today as we have progressed as a society, as a society in some regards, there comes the question, do you cancel the art over the artist? I think this is really relevant. And I'm not just talking about people of the past. Let's talk about JK Rawlings for a second, right? I'm not a huge Harry Potter fan. At least I never read any of the books. I've watched some of the movies. I think the the world building is pretty cool, but you know, it's it's to me those were always kids books and so I don't have the quite the same level of fondness as some people do. But J.K. Rawlings has some very controversial and in my opinion kind of stupid ideas when it comes to trans folks. And because of that and because she feels uh, very entitled to share her opinion, no matter the blowback, which of course, I guess we all do in some regard. Um, although, should we? That's a good question to ask ourselves. She has alienated a large percentage of her fan base with her controversial opinions. So as it relates to the question at hand, do you toss out the Harry Potter series you toss Hogwarts out with the bathwater. And my personal feeling has always been this. Separate the art from the artist. And I'll tell you why I feel this way. I can certainly understand if someone that you like has controversial opinions you don't want to f- support financially. Um, perhaps you're a big fan of black metal. And let's say the band Mayhem. And I think if you know anything about the history of Mayhem, pretty shitty dudes all the way around. If you choose, if one's of an artist's behavior is so vile to you that you no longer want to support their art financially, I understand. I understand that. Does it color the art, though? And I would argue no. And I would argue no because while... It's perfectly understandable why you wouldn't want to support someone financially. You don't want to line someone's pockets whose politics or whose opinions you don't agree with, especially if they cause harm to others, right? But the art itself, in my opinion, transforms the moment it leaves the artist's hands. Because there's a part of ourselves that completes the art. If I paint a painting especially anything in the world of abstract, and I put it out into the world, the art isn't complete until it's witnessed and viewed by the observer. It's in that moment when they make their own personal connection to the art that the art then is complete. And of course, it's not really complete because the next person will come along and they'll have their own connection with the art and it transforms once again. And that's to me the magic of art, right? What one, it's like those old memes you see where there's a, a six and a nine on the ground and people are looking at it from different perspectives. And certainly you could look at it from the perspective of intent. And I do think intent is important from uh, when an artist and an artist uh, in a, as one critiques a work of art, I think intent is absolutely important to that. But that's in critique. That's not necessarily in enjoyment. 
So if I create a painting and my intent is to show my misanthropic views of the world or whatever it may be, and you look at it and you see a glimmer of hope that I never intended, it doesn't denounce your observation and your opinion and your feeling that the art evokes. So because of that, because of my belief that art never fully settles until it's observed, I don't feel like the art is strictly the property of the artist. And therefore, if, for example, a Marilyn Manson song had great depth and meaning to you when you were growing up and maybe helped you out of a bad time or you it resonated with you in some strong way that, that now you feel because based on accusations that were made, you can no longer connect with it. I'm not telling you what to do, but for you personally, I believe, separate the art from the artist because whatever Mr. Manson's intent when making that song the moment you listen to it and you connected a personal part of yourself to that song, it transformed. It became something else, something yours, and that can never be taken away. Obviously, it's your choice. Sometimes we just outgrow things. Sometimes you hear something about someone and it's just too damn hard to separate it. It's a reminder of a, a letdown or it's a reminder of bad behavior or, or whatever it may be. And I understand that. I really do. But I also think that in our modern day culture, we've become very obsessed with appearing to be right. And this kind of goes back to the previous question, right? The tendency of hurting others we love by being right. I think as a society, especially when you look online, this is obsession with being on the right side of things, right? To listen to the right stuff and to, to like the right things. And it's all, there's all this social pressure to fit a mold. And if you're outside of that mode, you, it's very easy to get ostracized and canceled and all this other jazz. And, you know, I've, I've seen folks get dogpiled for books that they read and recommend be based on what the art, you know, what the artist, what the writer, what the author's personal politics were. And uh, I think all that shit's horseshit, to be frankly honest with you, because I don't think most of those people who are pressuring you to like the right kind of stuff, they don't give a shit. They really don't. They don't really care what you listen to or what you don't listen to. They don't really care whether you recommend it to someone else. They, their only care is to be viewed as right. And for all the same reasons I talked about as to why people will hurt people they love because of their obsession with being right, these folks online predominantly, especially on Twitter, you know, they, they lead these crusades to being right and they pressure everyone to think right and God forbid anyone say two minutes of a podcast the wrong thing that the that goes against what the people who think that they are right believe, and then it sh a shitstorm occurs online. None of that stuff matters to me. None of it matters. Who gives a fuck? Don't take advice from people. Don't don't take criticism from people you wouldn't take advice from. Right? If you like a piece of art, if a piece of art speaks to you, if you have a personal connection to something, it's yours. It's not theirs, it's not up for criticism, and it's not up for someone interjecting their own morality onto you. There are authors and artists whose personal lives I disagree with, and frankly, oftentimes, I don't even care about. I'm a huge, huge fan of Charles Bukowski. I think his writing is, in some ways, revolutionary in its simpleness, in its scummery in its griminess in its willingness to start with the warts and then the awe 
And yet, if you look at Charles Bukowski's life, I don't think we'd be hanging out. I don't think we'd be sharing a beer. I don't think that's the kind of person I'd want in my life. I could go on with other artists, actors, musicians. There's a reason why the term don't ever meet your heroes exists because sometimes you don't want to know about that. I'm a huge David Bowie fan. I don't agree with everything that David Bowie ever did in his lifetime. Frankly speaking, if he was still alive, I bet you David Bowie wouldn't agree with every single thing that he's ever done in his lifetime. People make mistakes. People do bad things. Norms change. You know, where you were born, what you were raised around, the the, the time you were born, the culture, the society around you, all of these things matter. And when you try to hold a microscope up to someone of the past under modern norms, they are almost always fall short of the purity test that a bunch of nerds online tend to galvanize around. So I say, like what you like, love what you love. And if a piece of art means something to you, it's your choice as to whether or not the behaviors of the artists change that meaning of the art to you and no one else's and don't feel any pressure to do so because those people who are going around telling everyone to only like purified stuff if you were down on your luck those aren't the people helping you out they're not the people giving you the helping hand they're the people who step over you sniff that you look down their nose at you and and pretend you don't exist i've never seen i know folks who are in desperate need of help and i never see any of those people help them All they do is they just change their little banners on their Instagram and Twitter and they act very pious, but they they don't, they don't care about that stuff and you shouldn't care about them. Like what you like. If art speaks to you, love it, hold on to it, make it special to yourself because that art is truly not complete until it's in your hands anyway. So no matter the behavior of the artist, you have a role to play in it. And, And that's for me, at least what I latch onto regardless of the behaviors of the artist that created the work all right what else do we have in our little mail back here i should have gotten a little gimmick of rustling around as though this were practical letters but this was all digital so i won't pretend that i'm rustling through an actual mailbag ah here we go what does it say about society as a whole that roger clemens baseball player and barry bonds also a baseball player never tested positive for peds and nothing they ever did was in violation of the rules of baseball. And yet, they were excluded from the Baseball Hall of Fame. Again, I, you know, again, I, I didn't put these questions in any specific order, but we can see some common themes in these questions that people are asking me. And I think it it's kind of speaks to what I was just talking about. I think that, um, you know, for those, for those people who may not know, may not be familiar with baseball, there was a time period when baseball started cracking down on PEDs, performance enhancing drugs, steroids for in layman terms. And um, a lot of people who were great baseball players, uh, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, Roger Clemens was a pitcher, Barry Bonds was known for his batting. They were, their, their reputation was tarnished based on the um, assumption, circumstantial evidence, uh, testimony, that these folks had engaged in performing enhancing drugs. And for many people, they found that the use of performing enhancing drugs was cheating. I'm one of those people. I personally believe that performance enhancing drugs in the worlds of sports is cheating. Now, here's the counter argument to that. The counter argument says that everyone was on PEDs 
and that these folks were great not because of PED usage, but they would have been great in any equal playing field. But because everyone was in using steroids and performing enhancing drugs, they were just that much more great, right? That if if they had to take performing enhancing drugs in order to level the playing field for themselves. And so if you could actually find a world to guarantee where no one cheated, these folks would be great regardless. And that's an argument. And that's an argument to it. Um, in terms of what this question is asking, though, about our society as a whole, I think what it says is that, again, we live in a world where people are trying to regulate morality. And I think that people would like to find scapegoats. People like to find people who are worse than them to make themselves feel better, to make them feel themselves feel more powerful. Uh, again, it's that ego needing to be satiated. I just watched a movie called Nightmare Alley, and I don't want to spoil anything. It's an amazing film, so please go watch it if you have an opportunity. And if you can, watch it in black and white, even, even that much better, in my opinion. In the movie, though, there's this character called The Geek. And he's essentially a wild man, sort of an unruly, uh, uncivilized beast of a man who bites the head off a chicken. And he's part of a freak show that people pay money to observe. The idea behind the geek in the movie is that this is someone that society can literally and metaphorically look down upon. They stand up in risers and they look down into a pit and they see this uncivilized, tragic man doing beastly things, and it makes them feel good about themselves. So how does that relate to our question? In the same way that I did about art and the idea of uh, should art be censored to fit the cultural preferences? Does the sins of the artists damn the art? It's the same thing here. You had a bunch of baseball writers who decide, who knew, who knew that there was bad behavior happening in baseball, and they sat on their hands and they said, nothing and then as things as data as information started to leak they decided to put on their piety hats and start looking down at these baseball players and shaking their fingers mostly writers you know always writers uh you know critics people who have no skills other than critique people with actual skills and guts to do the things that they just wish that they could do they started shaking their fingers and looking down their noses and thinking them better than thinking themselves better than these sports players who were in a system of cheating. They could have cleaned up that sport at any time they wanted to. They opted not to until the optics of the cheating became too bad, too unsustainable, too much of a smear on the on the corporate brand that is the MLB, and then they look for their scapegoats to tear down, to uh, make pariahs, so that they could then say, "Look how glorious we are! We cleaned up the sport." If this sounds like a metaphor for a lot of the stuff that happens online. Ding, ding, ding. You're right. It is. You see that all the time, right? You see these folks carrying around, acting like they're better. These folks know. They know that there's bad behavior in the world. They know their own bad behaviors, but they act bigger and better than everyone else because at the end of the day, they're just looking to look down their nose at folks. So in the case of Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, by the way, both those guys are kind of dicks. So it's hard to feel sorry for people like that as well. But, you know, there are 
extenuating circumstances that people, the very people who look down at them should know and should be using the way with their decision making. And they opted not to because it made them feel superior to these athletes whom they look at as a boxer from Animal Farm, right? Just people who are there to make them money, disposable labor. And I think it, and I think what it says about society is it's a reflection of our society as a whole, right? The wealthy business owners and the capitalists and the corporations and the whomevers, they they grind us to a halt, they they grind us to a nub, and then when we're no longer of use to them or it benefits them to tear you down to make themselves seem better, they will do so at a, without a hesitation in the world. And um, whether you're a baseball fan or otherwise, I think you could look at an example of this. I think you could look at social media for very similar examples. And you can see that this behavior is evergreen. It occurs all the time. And uh, I think it's pretty damning of society as a whole. I think that a culture that, that is obsessed with levying punishment rather than empathy, understanding a path to grow, a path to get better, a path to make to, to learn from one's mistakes is not a very attractive society to me and i think it's a failure i think it's a failure of us as humanity that we have created a society that is more interested in tearing people down than building them up there you go so our sports talk for the day moving on down there seems to be no longer there seems to no longer be a viable counterculture anymore The beats seem to be the last. Why isn't there and what the fuck happened? The spectacle happened. If you read the board's spectacle of the society, it's pretty easy to see what happened. I would take it to to simplify it. I would say this. Our culture and society at a certain point divorced itself from the working class. I always chuckle when I hear people call themselves leftists online because most of them aren't in any traditional classical sense but the very cultures and and subsections of society that were traditionally those who looked after the disenfranchised who amplified the voices of the voiceless those folks around the turn of the 50s 60s moved out of the working class areas and into academia and upper middle class societies uh, it became the culture of intellectuals. It's it's people reading theory with very clean fingernails, if that makes sense. And you see it all the time now. You see people, the, even the, I just recently saw that the, the mere mention of working with someone who maybe doesn't share your politics or maybe has some objectionable or problematic viewpoints is is treated with disdain. This idea of unity with people who don't agree exactly like you is treated with disgust. Again, it's a bunch of people looking down their noses at people less fortunate than them, people who maybe don't have all the same advantages that you had. And so why is there no viable counterculture anymore? Well, because there's the countercultures were always born out of the working class. They were born out of nothingness they don't trickle down this is in Reaganomics you know and so as we have separated ourselves from our working class connection 
you're just left with a bunch of wankers waxing poetic in coffee shops and smoking expensive cigarettes with their expensive made to look cheap clothing and it's it becomes it becomes trivialized then you add in the debord's um theory of the spectacle which society will take rebellion it will detooth it it will leave it rudderless it will leave it flaccid and it sells it back to oneself so in the 60s what we had 50s 60s we had this move from these working class folks the counterculture living in a working class environment moving into this academia intellectual environment and at the same time the spectacle catching on and finding a way to very quickly take this fit of rebellion and defang it before selling it back to you so it gives you the appearance and the and the idea of rebellion without any of the actual uh, danger that come associated with it. I mean, you could look at punk rock, right? Punk rock came. You could look at a, a glam, the original glam, like Bowie and T-Rex and things of that nature. There, there are still moments of counterculture briefly post-punk, you know, throbbing gristle. Um, but it very, very quickly gets the moment, it, it almost the moment it manifests itself, it gets plucked and sold back to you. Look at Hot Topic, right? Goth and, and heavy metal, these uh, subversive cultures, scared your parents, have uh, you know parental advisory stickers on them, sold right back to you. You know, the most recent Super Bowl, you had uh, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre, guys that were part of a culture that was scary. When NWA came out, it was scary. It frightened people. These guys were saying, fuck the police. And now they're at the Super Bowl, you know? Um, that's just what happens. That's what happens to culture. You know, the moment a movement becomes big enough, the spectacle will grab, will sink its talons into it and rip it to shreds and put it back together in a, in a fast meal of what it once was and it'll put it on a rack for $9.99 that you can pluck off and form your identity around. And because we've been trained to form my identities off the rack, any chance that that there could be something dangerous and subversive to be created gets stomped out by the very people who used to claim to be part of these subcultures, right? You know, if you say anything controversial, uh, the, the purity police come around. And so, and look, there'll be people who get mad that I say that. I don't care. You know, but it's the reality of it, you know? Um, a few years ago, Glenn Danzig uh, was asked if he could write, if punk rock could exist today. And he said, no. And, uh, and people jumped all over him about it. Levying an Adham attacks and calling him right wing and this, that, and the other. And frankly speaking, no, it couldn't. Punk rock could not exist today for a variety of reasons. Most of which was, if you look back at punk rock lyrics, if you look back at punk rock ethos, if you look back at the aesthetics and the culture behind it, none of that can exist anymore. That doesn't mean that everything that did exist should exist. It simply means there is no space to buck the trends. There is no space in our current culture to rebel against the status quo. There is no room for you to speak out and speak your truth and and question what people think because if you do you get attacked and you start getting called names and you start being your words get taken out of context and so 
Look, again, just because something is counterculture and rebellious doesn't mean it's good or right. But all the civil liberties that we enjoy now from the LGBTQ community to racial uh, you know, rights to women's suffrage were all started in rebellion. They were all dangerous. They were all going against the status quo. Every single one of them. You know, we celebrate Pride Week. It was started with a riot. It was starting with saying things that weren't acceptable at the time. That's how we've got rights. So if you're part of the people out there who don't ever, ever, ever want to hear a dissenting voice, you're part of the problem and you're part of why there is no counterculture anymore. Because the, the, it's become just an aesthetic now. It's just fashion. It's a faded sticker on a skateboard. That's it. And nothing more. And I don't know that there's in this current world that we have that it has the room to exist outside of your small community. And frankly, maybe that's fine. Maybe that's all it needs to exist as. Maybe you and your close group of friends and your close little culture and your little society you build around you, maybe that's all it needs to be for right now. But the moment you try to promote it online, it gets stomped out and they get stomped out by the very people that it should speak to the most. The society and capitalism has turned the very people who once were part of real counterculture, they've turned them into the thought police who are going around telling everyone what to believe and what not to believe, and they've stomped out any sense of rebellion. These are people who call themselves leftists, and then they support a super cop as the vice president, <laughs> like who, who just six months earlier would have been saying, you know, all cops are bastards. If, if, that, if, if there's no other way to highlight the absurdity of what constitutes rebellion these days. I mean, that's, that's a prime example. So uh, you can't even, you can't even criticize any political party because someone's going to come after you and get angry at you and whatever. We're, we're a culture uh, following in step. That's where we are right now. Uh, should that be the case? I don't think so. I'm always for rebellion. I think counterculture is good a thing. I think dissenting voices are a good thing. I believe that people are smarter than they're being given credit for and can discern what is something good to be heard and what is bullshit and, and everything in between. But that's not a popular conversation at this point. Look at how people are treating Russell Brand, you know, and whomever. Right. Again, people will take things out of context and assume that you uh, uh, in, that you agree with every single thing ever said. But that's just foolishness. And, and people who think that are fucking morons, frankly. All right. Moving on. What are my thoughts on art imitating life or does art imitate it at all? This kind of this kind of does sort of dovetail great from the talk about the sort of the spectacle and counterculture in that does art imitate life? Um I mean, there's no there's no one global answer to that, in my opinion. I think what the only answer that is available is to say it depends on the artist. But I say that that's much like counterculture. I think that's going away. I think that uh, most art has been turned into commerce. I think we live in a, a side hustle culture where everything, every artistic expression can be boiled down to how marketable it can be, how many followers it can get you, how much money you can make of it, by the way usually not very much. Um, what kind of little fiefdom you can set up, what kind of mini Kardashian you can be. So in that regard, it does imitate life because that's what everyone's doing, right? 
art nowadays is largely soulless and plastic and commercialized and it holds no deeper meaning than to put on a t-shirt and so in that regard i think that's a great reflection of our society um but to me and i was just having a conversation about this earlier like great art highlights the parts of our soul we don't want to talk about the parts of society that we don't want to address it it has the ability to force us to question our beliefs it has the ability to raise questions we're not quite sure we want to answer great art reflects the seedy underbelly of the world it's not just to hang on a wall that you buy from ikea but again much like counterculture that's becoming more rare and it's not because there aren't people out there with great ideas it's just that the moment it becomes a business it becomes something else a great example of this is Banksy. You know, Banksy, the street artist, was out there doing very subversive art, and was it was a movement was starting to build. People were taking his art, and I think it was opening their eyes to some of the rampant commercialism that was occurring all around them. But just as soon as it did, just the moment it became wide enough spread that it was starting to create impact. Banksy's were starting to sell for like millions of dollars, uh, you know, pranks that he did that were meant to sort of even subvert that sort of buyer's market were, were treated as these, you know, very expensive endeavors. Um, most famously, his art being shredded. Like, I think the shredded piece of art like raised in value rather than be destroyed in value because... Um, it because it got it got absorbed into the spectacle, right? Shepard Ferry uh, started doing street art, and now he's just doing you know he's doing Obama posters and he's making T-shirts for Hot Topic, and he's you know it, again it gets rung through the commercial machine, and the ability to imitate the soul of the society is getting lost because that doesn't make money, and it's all about making money. And listen, as an artist, you should be able to make money. You know, you really should. You should be able to live off your art. I mean, in a wondrous world where people's craftsmanship, artisanship is enough to support them. That's the world I want to live in. The problem is, and I know there are folks who will listen to this who who are artists and who will understand. The problem is, is that you oftentimes have to change your art to, to be more marketable rather than your art creating a market. And um, so... It's out there still, you know, it, it, it still exists, but I think it's going to become more and more rare in the same way that counterculture and for the same reasons that counterculture is becoming rare because we're not in a society that's at the moment open to dissenting voices, questioning voices, things that push the envelope, make you think, make you question, make you doubt. Those things aren't popular right now and they get stomped out pretty fast. I've seen people who do amazing art live on the streets and yet people who make shit pop art, you know, widgets, they, they're living, they're living the high life. You know, you get the Kim Kardashians of the world telling people that they're lazy, people born with silver spoons up their ass telling people that they don't work hard enough and they make billions and yet people who, who struggle to feed themselves making art are living legitimately on the streets trying to sell art so they can get a roof over their head every single day and we step over them and we look down our noses and we carry on with our iPhones and our and our whatever bullshit that doesn't doesn't say or do anything to us. We watch Marvel films 
And then we get mad when someone like a, a true artist like Martin Scorsese says that those are amusement parks, that they're not real cinema. Semantics probably, but still, I think the greater point exists that those movies don't really say anything. It doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that they're not really art. There is a room for both. I mean, there's schlock is okay. Like, I love bad movies. But we live in this time where the, the, our, 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 um, our tastes are not geared towards challenging meaningful art any longer. We want to have comfort food. We want McDonald's. We don't want our taste buds confused or challenged. We don't want to trace new things. We don't want we we want things as bland and as um, consistent as possible. And frankly speaking, that speaks to a greater issue with the culture that we live in and and how capitalism has sort of ground us down and and separated us from the meaning of our labor and and a lot it forced us into a world where every year gets a little worse than the next and so. I understand the desire to just have something comforting. Like life's hard enough as it is, but um, I don't think we're doing ourselves. A, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice, you know, in the same way that eating McDonald's every day might be comfort food, you know, eating pizza every day may be comfort food, but it's not very good for you long-term. And uh, if every day you have a bad day and every day, every time you have a bad day, you eat this shitty comfort food, you're going to find yourself very unhealthy very very quick and and that momentary separation of the anxieties and despair that you're feeling by consuming this schlock it's very fleeting and then you're going to be miserable again and maybe probably more so uh, and i kind of feel like that's that's what art is these days it's been it's been transformed into fast food easily you know manufactured schlock that is just designed to placate us long enough to get us through the next day before we return to the buttons and levers of society. What is my take on curses and sending blessings? Um, an hour into this podcast, and this is the first sort of a magic spirituality question. So I had a, I had a guest on a little while back, my friend Whitney, who talked at great length about ethics and magic. Um, it's a thing that I don't think is talked about very often. And it's a shame because I think it's a very important part of this magical journey that we absolutely should discuss. So very simply, I would say I am not a curses guy. I, I have sort of been brought up with the belief that um, I'm not going to swallow poison to spit it in the face of my enemies. You know, I think that when you curse someone, when you bring in that kind of negative energy into you, and it does have to travel into you. It's like swallowing poison to spit in the eye of your enemy. And I don't think that's a good thing. I think that's a very damaging thing. I think, frankly speaking, look at the kind of folks who regularly promote hexing and curses. Look at their lives and ask yourself, is that the kind of life you want to live? Um, now, I'm not saying don't protect yourself. I think you could protect yourself without invoking curses or hexes on people. And in fact, whenever I have found myself in an unfortunate situation where I have to use magic to deal with a, an online bully or a person in my life who's no longer serving me in a meaningful way, I try to approach it more from the perspective of protecting myself and binding them to their own insulated reality away from mine 
to keep those whom I love and myself free of drama and hatred and ugliness. But I also hope, and I also, as part of my ritual work, I also try to leave space for that person to heal. Because again, as I said at the top of the show, hurt people hurt people. And oftentimes the kind of folks that you want to curse or that you want to hex, uh, you know, they've probably wronged you in some manner. And uh, you just got to remember that they're probably a hurt person lashing out. And why would you want to become a hurt person lashing out yourself? Because if they've hurt you, now you're hurt. Now you want to hurt them back. And we're just this, in this perpetual cycle of hurt people hurting other people. And I don't think it's a good thing. So, I, you know, whatever. I have no expert on the matter. There are people, there'll definitely be people who, who disagree with me. But from my personal standpoint, I don't do curses or hexes. I wish people the best, even people whom I really dislike, even people who I find to be um, distasteful. Uh, they, just because they don't have a role in my life doesn't mean that they're a that they don't have, that they don't deserve the ability to grow into better people because that's the only way we're going to stop the hurt, in my opinion. And as it comes to blessings, I again, this is a courtesy thing. Um, ask, ask, ask for permission. You know, you know, sometimes a blessing isn't always a blessing. We won't always know the particulars of a, of a certain individual. We we don't want to send the wrong kind of energy. You got to be careful about that kind of stuff. So I, I always ask, um, you're, you're, you're sending your personal chi, your personal energy, you're drawing in divine energy to send to someone else. Ask, ask if they want it, ask how they want it. It's just good ethics. It's the polite thing to do. And it could, it can keep you from perhaps using, uh, magic in a negative an unintentional, but still negative way. So I would say, uh, try to reduce, the lashing out of pain and try to increase communication and asking and making sure that the recipient is open to whatever you're sending and the way that they want to receive it. What are my thoughts on globalization? Well, apparently we're going to try to get me canceled today. Um, it's bad. <laughs> I mean, I don't know a better way to say it. I think that uh, a, a world that is run by unelected corporations who answer and who are accountable to no one is a bad thing. I don't know how that's even controversial, but yet it seems like it is. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I don't trust corporations. I don't trust governments. I don't think anyone should. I think you don't need to be a conspiracy theorist. Just pick up a history book, standard old history book, you know, just go to your local high school and ask them to rent one and just browse through it. This millions of examples of governments doing terrible things to either their own citizens or citizens abroad. I mean, turn on the news, watch CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or BBC or PBS. It doesn't matter. Any what any news program, just look at the way America has treated countries abroad. Look at the way America treats its homeless population. Look at the way America treats uh, immigrants. Look at the way America treats those people who are who grow up in poor areas of the country. Ask yourself how you treat people who grow up poor in the South. And then ask yourself if you want people even further removed from humanity making decisions on your life. They don't care about you. They don't care about you. They don't give a fuck about you. And I'm paraphrasing the great George Carlin, but it's, 
it's been a defining factor in my life and it has fundamentally shaped my politics. And I think that, um, you know, we should hold leaders accountable. We should have that power. Leaders, it's a little bit of a misnomer because they work for us. Governments work for us. Corporations work for us. It's not the other way around, or at least it shouldn't be. And so this growing effort to globalize things and to have a handful of corporations making all the decisions for people that they view as commodities and not human beings, I cannot see as a good thing in any manner because there's no there's no way to hold them accountable for their actions. There's no way to pull the plug if they get powerful enough. And frankly speaking, they probably already are. But uh, I, I don't. I don't think that we should throw our lot in with folks who claim to have our best interests at heart because they don't even understand who we are. They're they're like folks in an airplane looking down at culture and societies and cities. And to them, it's just a series of, of moving dots and blinking distant lights. And, and it's no more human than that. And so um, it's bad. It's a bad thing. You should, they should work for us. If there's no mean, if there's no mechanism by which working class people can control quote unquote leaders or corporation or industries or people in power, then it's a bad thing. It all power should rest in the hands of the people. If you're listening and you're from America, this is what our country was supposedly founded on, at least in writing, if not in principle. And frankly speaking, that's one of the few great things I think as a country we've done is this idea that people hold the power. We the people, right? We're supposed to be the ones who are in charge of our own destinies. There is a role for more centralized government for certain things, roads, civil liberties, maybe maybe military protection. But um, beyond that, I think it's gone way, way too far. And I think it's ultimately a bad thing. And I think that bears out. All one has to go look at is the price of gas outside or how many brown kids are still in cages on the border or the homeless population. Look up the homeless population where I live in Los Angeles and ask yourself if we're going in a good direction. I don't think we are, um, but I don't know what more there is to do about it other than maybe um, to start changing our personal mindsets and expanding our own minds and our own hearts and empathy so that maybe we could teach another generation to be to do with this world something a little bit better than we've done thus far. What movie has had the most spiritual impact on your life and why? Great question. I love movie talking. Um, I thought about this quite a bit today, uh, which is one of the reasons why the podcast is coming out a little later because I wasn't 100% on the answer, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list two movies. Um, because if I'm being very honest, the things that have had the greatest spiritual impact on me have probably been more books than movies. But there are two movies that I think really opened up questions about existence in a way that was very fundamental to me. Um, probably the first on that list would be Dark City by Alex Proyas. It's this follow-up to The Crow. Uh, and it's, it, it shares um, a lot of similarities with the movie The Matrix, which probably most people's answer. Um, but I actually thought The Dark City was done better. And I actually think that Dark City is a better example of how to take Plato's allegory of the cave and use it in a more modern way to open the fact that perhaps the society that we're living in isn't exactly what we think that it is. And I'm not necessarily saying that we're in a simulation or that we're in the matrix, although we're certainly heading that direction. But I think more from the term, from the perspective of 
uh, here's a, a, a very great example. Um, do we live in a free country? Most people, if you ask, would say yes. But when we really examine that, are we truly free? And, and I, you know, again, I'll quote George Carlin once again. Our freedom is, is boiled down to the choice between plastic and p- paper and plastic, Coke and Pepsi. And it doesn't extend much further than that. There's some incremental changes, and we shouldn't look down at those things. Those things are important. I think the movement towards trans rights is a huge example of civil liberties still growing and progressing in the manner that they should be. But for every success that we have in that regard, there's many more examples where our lives are being controlled and are being um, manipulated by people who don't give a shit about the average working class person. And I'm not talking about reptile people or any crazy shit like that. I'm just saying these people, these suits, these corporate interests, they don't care about the average working class folks. And guess what, folks? That means you too. They don't care. So um, that's the first one. And then the second one in, in a very similar way was Blade Runner, which is my favorite movie. I've talked about that before. The existential questions that Blade Runner opens this idea of man and God and what that means and what our relationship is with our creator, with our father, with our with existence, with life. Is it better to burn out than to fade away? All these questions I think are addressed and, and asked by Blade Runner and left in such a way that you as the audience member can figure it out for yourself. And the strength of that movie beyond just arising those questions within myself is that it helped me to start thinking in that manner to start thinking in in less absolutes and more contemplation and if not for those things allowing me to question my upbringing the norms the agreements that i had made growing up i don't know that i would be prepared for the spiritual path that i am on now and so i think that those two would be at the top of the list and they're fantastic movies anyway so I recommend even if you just want to watch amazing cinema, the art of cinema, those those are right there at the top of my list of things that you can not only watch from an artistic perspective, but also from a perspective of perhaps opening your mind a little bit to thinking about the world in a less conventional manner. Do you think that the rule of magical sympathy can still apply in an online space or does there need to be a physical connection between the initial offering and the outcome? Now, I have to be honest, I wasn't totally familiar with the idea of magical sympathy or sympathy magic. Uh, So I did a little research looking that up. And as I've thought about this question, I would have to say that one must be really careful when doing things on a in a digital space, because there tends to be this idea that it's just uh, it's the world around you, but just digitized, right? Uh, when you talk to someone online, that it's just an A B conversation. But uh, my friends over at the Regrettable Century did a review of a book called The Twittering Machine, and in the book, it talks about how everything that we do online is passed through a digital intermediary. It's almost like the old operators that would connect one person to the next in a telephone, and so. There's a lot of gray area that happens in that in-between stage between me at my phone and you at your phone and the digital landscape that something must transverse, that must travel through in order to reach its intended destination. So when it comes to sort of um, symbolism or sympathy or, or, or 
manifesting something to an object with the intent of a a, a result that one you know a manifest a manifestation of one's results of one's will i think that one I, I don't want to say it's it's impossible to do because i don't think it's impossible to do but i do think one must be very careful with it i do think that um one must recognize that anything that we do on a digital level is not going from a to b it's traveling through this digital frontier and that there are many bad actors and there are many agents through that that exist that think of them as roadside marauders that can potentially uh interfere intercept interrupt whatever magic you're looking to do um especially if it's connected to something in the real world on the other side of this this landscape of this um this open this digital frontier and so it's not i would not say it's uh impossible to do i think it certainly can be done but i think that it has to be done with care and with the recognition that it could be uh it could be potentially your your intent can change as it passes through this digital egregore uh it may find itself slightly altered on the way out here's a great metaphor uh the movie the the, the remake of the fly with jeff goldblum right Jeff Goldblum gets in a pod. He transfers himself from one pod to the next pod, but a fly gets in the pod and he comes out fundamentally changed. And I think that we can think about magic in those terms and think about that when we step into the booth, there's something in between point A and point B that that might get mixed in with our intent. And we have to be careful about that because who knows exactly in what manner it transforms it. So it's uh, best I can answer with that one. Next one is, what are your thoughts on multiverse theory? Do you think it exists? or And if we can jump through those other universes in dreams. I do believe in the multiverse. I have for a very long time, well before I got into magic. In fact, I used to often think about the idea of ghosts and specters and whether or not what we see and what we think are ghosts are really bleed from a, an alternate reality. Um, I used to equate it to... Uh, old VHS tape. I know some of you might be too young to remember VHS tape, but VHS tapes used to be able to re-record over and over and over. You could record over an existing movie or TV show or whatever it may be. But if you did it enough times, you would get these weird bleeding images where um, the previous TV show, for example, may not totally get erased by the new program you were recording. And so you would get this sort of overlap. And I kind of always thought maybe that's what ghosts were. I don't know if that's still the case, but it's certainly food for thought. So I do think it's very probable and likely that a multiverse exists, that if time is a is not a is not linear, that it's in fact a a scattershot of frames like a like a cinema reel. Like if you took 35 millimeter and chopped every frame out and just tossed it on a table that that's really more what time looks like. It's just this unorderly, simultaneous happenings, moments, momentary happenings all at once. And um, Grant Morrison actually has a really interesting idea of what time looks like from the fourth dimension. It would every it would be like stacking frames one on top of each other. It would create almost like this slug-like uh, entity if, with every frame, us being in a slightly different position in time and space. Um, so I do think that the multiverses can exist and probably do exist. And as to whether or not we can access them, I have no idea. I I, uh, I mostly dream about wrestling and being a pirate. So I don't know if we can access those things. I'm sure there are smarter people who might 
who might know the answer to that and, and maybe even have techniques on how to amplify that. Um, but I do think that can happen in dreams um, and uh, in, in responsible way with some certain drug uses is I think that we can amplify our senses to be more observant to um, energetic levels that we don't normally perceive and that that can sometimes be misconstrued as peering into an alternate universe or maybe we are, I don't know. But I, but I do think that there are certain meditative states, um, dream-like states, uh, drug-in-fueled states that one can enter to increase one's perceptions. And perhaps, though I don't know, perhaps some of those perceptions can be become so acute that they can perceive other universes that exist. Um, hopefully that answers the question. I wish I knew more on it. It's very fascinating, though. And I, if anyone has... Uh, a suggestion as to where one could learn more about this idea of multiverses and 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 um, tra- you know uh, traveling between them on some sort of like astral level. I'd love to hear about it. So please let me know, uh, Davis Skura on Twitter, in the Twittering machine. What about lost civilizations? So I think this question is uh, talking about sort of you ever seen those like History Channel shows that talks about ancient civilizations that get lost to times. I think. The, the one that springs to mind the most is Atlantis and things of that nature. I got to be honest, I don't know that much about that stuff. I you know I don't really get into ancient aliens and things of that nature. I, uh, I kind of, it doesn't, if it doesn't bother me, it doesn't, it's not really in my, in my purview. Um, but I do think that over time, much of culture and societies of the past has been lost or watered down or changed fit a more modern sensibility kind of like we were talking about earlier in terms of like morals and so i think that sometimes we observe things through a modern lens without proper historical context of what these ancient societies actually were doing actually believing in their process how certain things were created Uh, and so i think that one must be careful when doing research on these ancient societies that some of this hasn't been sort of filter through a salacious modern lens to make it more intriguing like again people are talking about like aliens building the pyramids some of that stuff is kind of rooted in racism to be honest i think that a lot of times people westerners in particular tend to think that other cultures are uncivilized and thus could not have created these magical amazing marvels of the modern era and um just because a culture is different than oneself doesn't mean that they had alien help along the way in some regards while they may not be quite as quote-unquote advanced as us i mean they don't have iphones and things of that nature but they might have had a more egalitarian system um they might have been more at peace with one another uh, they they probably spoke and connected and shared and and lived in a more tribal sense than we do now a a more unified united tapestry of culture that was interlinked and relied on one another those things existed maybe those things don't quite exist as much now and so from that regard i think when we look back at these ancient civilizations it's worth examining if perhaps um what we're learning about them is not being filtered through a lens that misconstrues what those cultures were actually about and frankly what we could learn from them so 
Um, you know, I don't know if these crazy ancient civilizations once existed and I don't know if aliens were part of it or lizard people or werewolves or whatever fucking crazy wacky stuff people think about. Um, I don't know any of that stuff. I'm, but a mere filmmaker. So what do I know? But I do know that, uh, it's fascinating. I think we can always learn from the past. I think it's important for us to learn from the past. I think it's important for us to learn from the past within historical context and not what makes us feel better about today. But much like with the conversations about art, it should make us question some things. I think that's okay. I think questioning oneself and questioning what we're doing and the direction we're going, I think those are always important things and and uh, necessary lessons for us to learn because, frankly speaking, we'll learn them one way or another, whether we choose to or whether it's forced upon us by destiny. Current state of people all over the world. What's happening? How it's affected people's mental state? Whew. Um... I'm very sad that so much of the conversation about COVID and the lockdowns and the quarantines has been politicized. I think we've done ourselves a huge disservice by making public health a political endeavor, um, no matter what side you're on. I think that there are so many bad faith actors in these spaces, so many grifters, that I think that we've really done ourselves as a society a disservice in exploring the pros and cons of certain things. Um, you know, for uh, for me, when the pandemic hit, I really needed some downtime. It allowed me the space to dive inside and to explore magic in earnest, um, do some therapy, do some shadow work, um, help put some perspectives, and it's an ongoing Obviously, it's an ongoing endeavor. And again, like I've said many, many times, be better tomorrow than you were today. But it really, for me, started there. And so I appreciated it. It also, I had moments where I was overwhelmed, especially during Black Lives Matters and, and just being completely saturated with the news and the negativity and the, you know, it, it, you know, looking at statistics every day and it bogs you down. And it's bad for your head. It's bad for your health. And I think a lot of people that, that went through the same experience for them. It was even worse. I mean, there's the financial pressures, the uncertainty, the, um, being, you know, people who suffer from uh, drug abuse, uh, um, and, and addictions, you know, alcoholic addictions, uh, whatever the addictions may be. I mean, I think, I think that being trapped inside, regardless of whether you think it was a, a important, step for the larger general health we can't ignore that for individualistic health it was very hard on people i know folks who went you know they had one or two bad incidents and then the pandemic happened and you know those incidences in any other time in history might have been easily dispelled or or worked through or overcome through you know spending time with their friends going out distracting oneself being part of culture as, uh, and society at large. Um, but because these negative experiences happened right before the pandemic, they didn't have that. And so I've seen folks' mental health uh, really deteriorate and, and be harmed and um, worsen over the course of the last couple of years. I think that, um, I think again, you know, not only did the politicizing of a public health issue uh lead us away from asking um, and addressing important questions on how it would affect people's individual mental states. But I also think that it furthered the divide. I mean, I think 
there, there are a handful of events throughout history in my lifetime that have just deepened this divide amongst people, this deepened this tribalism amongst people. Nine Eleven being one of them. Um, I think Occupy Wall Street. I think uh, the elections of Obama and Trump, and the pandemic, and now you know this war in the Ukraine. I think that these events have uh, and 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 of course most of this if you look at the dates of these events that i listed most of them have happened during the prime the age of social media which starts around 2009 and i think that as we move into more digital spaces and we consume news through these digital spaces like i talked about with the question about magic sympathy um we have to remember that it's being filtered through a digital landscape filled with roadside marauders, bad faith actors, agents who are looking to use it to learn more about you, to sell shit to you that you don't need, um, and to control you and to shape your mindsets. And so what's happened is that we're so locked into our own echo chambers of yes men that we have we are rapidly losing our ability to listen to other people, to open our minds to being wrong. I mean, there are several questions. These are all from different people. There are several questions where it feels like I'm giving kind of a similar answer because a lot of these, you know, the, uh, the hurting people because you're trying to be right, our, our association with art, um, the sort of purity cleansing with baseball. I mean, it, these are all questions that sort of keep coming back to the same sort of topic where because of where we're at in this world, we have isolated ourselves from people who are even remotely different than ourselves. And because of that, I think that we're, we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice. We're not growing. We're, we're shrinking. We're, we're, we're degenerating. We're becoming uh, senseless mobs you know, out for blood and vengeance and whatever can satiate our, our ego in the moment to make us feel better about our shitty existence in this ever increasingly dumpster fire of a country i'm talking about america but probably other countries as well and i think that um look i'm not saying I, I use the block button very liberally on twitter not because i'm not open to learning from people differently than me but because i can't take crazy and i don't want to take crazy on that space because i don't it's just it's not the time and the place when I was growing up, you know, we were raised to not talk about politics at the dinner table. It wasn't the time and the place, you know, um, you, you know, you, you, the social media to me is not the time nor the place to have those conversations. And so people who insist upon it, they go away. People who have shown to me to be of poor moral fiber. I just, I, I just don't need that. That being said, in real life, I'm far more open to talking with people who are different than me, far more open to learning about differences and different perspectives. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a very, 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 very left-leaning person, if you can't tell by some of the language I use in this podcast. But um, I have friends who are more right-leaning. I have friends who, um, even at one point or another, may have considered themselves Republican. I have friends, you know, I I have friends of all walks of life because I try to look beyond ideologies and i try to look at the person and who they are and if there's anything ever said that truly makes me feel uncomfortable i feel strong enough and bold enough and comfortable enough and secure enough in mine and this other person's relationship to address it and talk through it and come to some resolution one of the person who has submitted a question is one of my really good friends and he and i do not always see eye to eye 
on topics, uh, especially in politics. In fact, I had him on the podcast and the whole podcast was us kind of disagreeing. Um, that's okay. That's all right. I'm, I'm secure in myself enough to be able to disagree with someone on a political or ideological standpoint. And I think that when we look at um, folks' mental health and, and just sort of the current state of things, I think that that has eroded in people and it's contributing to despair along with the fact that under a capitalist society, we are disassociated from the fruits of our labor. We are disassociated with our communities. We are disassociated with um, spirituality. We are disassociated with kindness, love, sharing, sacrifice. These things we are separated from based on this technological monster that we've built this church of mammon that we've built that's consumed with materialism and money and greed and selfishness and this desire to become a celebrity and all that stuff and all of it is gets us further and further away from humanity from sympathy from understanding the further you isolate and insulate yourself from people who are different from you the more likely you're to convince yourself that you're right with the capital R and you'll stop learning. And if you stop learning, you're dying. And it's bad for your health. It's bad for you. You know what's good for your health? Sharing, understanding, doing service to others. My mom, when I was growing up, used to say anytime I was depressed, I'd go to a soup kitchen. Go serve people who are less fortunate than you. That will resume your humanity. That will help your mental state. That will make remind you that not only the perspective that there are people who have it worse than you, but also the reminder of your humanity, your ability to be selfless. Many cultures, when they define happiness, they define it by not what they can do for themselves, but what they can do for others. And unfortunately, we've had one hit after hit after hit of these global events that have isolated us, that have atomized us, that have driven us away from community-based societies. And as a result... We are siloed with people who think just like us and our only form of relieving the pain is by attacking others. It's by monsterizing, demonizing people who think a little differently than us. It's by rejecting those who even have the slightest difference of opinion. It's failing to recognize that sometimes it's just that, an opinion. And we all know the old saying about how opinions are like assholes. So um, it's bad right now, I think. it's it's. Uh, I weep for the state of the world right now. And I can only hope and pray that over time we will come out of this, that we'll recognize that salvation does not lie in social media or in gadgets or in, in Teslas and and clothing and all that other shit like salvation lies in and relying on one another because i believe that we are all one and if we're all one and we're all sprung from the same source if we are divinity looking upon itself then it only makes sense that the best way to relieve this pain within our souls is to unite with one another i know there are people online who would think that i'm a whatever by saying that, but back in the old days, that used to just be called being a hippie. That used to be just be called, you know, being about love. And I think it just comes down to that. And I think the the world has largely forgotten that. And I can only hope that on a small level, 
we're able to remind ourselves of who we truly are and we can learn to put aside differences and we can learn to work through differences. Some differences can't be put aside, but almost all differences can be worked through if both parties have an open mind and an open heart. And um, I hope I hope that maybe that can happen uh, before it's too late, if it isn't already. I'd like to believe that it's not quite too late, but we're close to it. We're If you remember the old doomsday clock back when we were in the Cold War, we're like at 1159. And I, I really hope that we do something soon to, to turn back that clock because... Um, the world can be a pretty cool place if we allow it to be. And if uh, and people around you, people who are different than you, can be very, very cool if you let them in your life and you let go of some of that ideology uh, and stop believing that it's truth with a capital T and start realizing that some of it, it's just a matter of opinion. And lastly, as we bring this episode to a close, I hope you guys have enjoyed this rambling. An hour and a half of me just talking straight to you. I hope it's enjoyable. I'm answering this the best I can. That's all I can do. What are some hard truths everyone who's getting into film should know? Perfect. End on a film question. An area I actually have expertise in. Um, film is not... Not all aspects of film are creative, but all aspects of film are creative. And obviously that's a contradiction. But here's what I mean by that. A lot of people get into film with this idea that it's this big sort of collaborative think tank. And everyone's just spitting ideas. And it's not. There are it is it is structured um, based on sort of military esque structure. There's a there's a hierarchy. There are people in certain positions that are dedicated to do those positions' jobs, and it's best not to waver outside of that. That being said, just because you're a PA or you're a grip or you're an electrician doesn't mean that there's not a creative aspect to your job. And I would go further and saying that all jobs can be creative. You know, and again, I'll, I'll go back to this this current society that we've built that has divorced us from the fruits of our labor. But in an olden time, the work that you put in, you should feel pride about because there's a certain creativity behind that. The guy who's lugging around lumber still has to creatively decide how to stack the lumber so it doesn't fall out of the truck, how to best hold the lumber so that he can maximize what he gets out of that. You know, there, there's there's a creative aspect to any kind of job you can do if you approach it that way. In my part of the job, I deal a lot with numbers and logistics. On the surface, it doesn't seem very creative, but it is. Problem solving inherently is a creative field, no matter what the problem you're trying to solve is. So for those people who are getting into film, I would say, just remember that just because you're in the film doesn't mean it's time to start pitching your creative ideas to everyone, but it does mean that you can use your creativity to do whatever your assigned task is in the best possible way. And I'll add to that, that everyone in film is watching what you're doing. People want to bring other people along with them. Finding good filmmakers is like any good culture or society you want to bring the people who best serve the greater good with you you want to surround yourself with good people right just like a group of friends or a block or a culture or society and so we watch people filmmakers watch they're watching what you're doing they're, they're seeing the effort you're putting in they're checking out your attitude they're noticing how you approach a job how much love and passion you bring to it is this are you grumpy all day on set or or are you appreciative of being there 
That doesn't mean being a wallflower or being a rug to be stepped over, but like, are you appreciating the fact that you get the opportunity to create something artistic for a living? People see that. They're watching. They're watching you. They're noticing you. Be mindful of that. Know that everyone up the chain is looking at you and watching you and clocking as to whether or not you're the kind of person they want to roll with, right? Are you the person they want to go shotgun with? Are they the, are, are you their ride or die? They're looking at that. So this is why it's important to be creative in your job, to, to maximize your skill set, no matter what your responsibility is, because people are watching. And in my experience, this 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 uh, industry we call Hollywood, right? This this business we call show, it's all about relationships and it's all about showing people through your actions, both verbally and uh, nonverbal, your intentions. It's showing them what matters to you and what you're willing to do and how you're willing to do it and what you're bringing to the table. And if you can prove to them through your actions that you're the kind of person that they want to depend on, you'll keep getting more work and you'll keep growing. And uh, it's a tough job. It's not for everyone. Hours are long. I mean, you guys can tell that I've sometimes on when I'm doing these podcasts, I've been more weary than others. And there are a lot of nights of sleep that I give up and being away from your family for months on end. I mean, it's not an easy job. It's not a glamorous job, but it can be a very fulfilling job. And it's one of the few jobs left, I think, that is more closely associated with artisanship and craftsmanship than your standard retail job where you're just kind of pulling a lever and pushing a button. And, um, you know, all work is good work to me. All work is work you can be proud of to me. Um, I'm very working class oriented. But film is one of those ones where it really does feel like you can kind of put your personal stamp in a way that not a lot of other industries allow. And so take advantage of that because people are watching. All right, folks, that is it. That's my 15 questions. These are things, my insights that I've gained over the last 41 trips around the sun. So I want to thank you for listening. I I know this is a different podcast than usual. We're going to have a guest back next week, but I want to mix things up from time to time. So let me know if you enjoy this. Let me know if you'd like to hear me do this again um, sparingly. It's a little hard to do it all by myself, but let me know if this is intriguing to you. Maybe next time you'll want to chime in a question that I can answer on this or I can give my perspective or I can ask questions about. Let me know if this is enjoyable to you. I do all this podcasting for you guys. I enjoy it for my personal self, and I also enjoy the fact that there are people all across this globe who tune in week after week and listen to me ramble on. Thank you. It means the world to me. Uh, I wouldn't do it if if I didn't get such amazing feedback and and um, such considerate comments. And I, I thank you all very much. I hope that everyone has learned something from this. Uh, if you agree with me, if you disagree with me, let me know. David Skiro on Twitter. Tweet at me. Hit me up. Um, let me know your thoughts. Let me know if this is fun. Let me know your, where I could have, when, what, maybe I got something wrong. Maybe I could have expanded on something. Let's keep the conversation going. Conversation is good. No matter what people online tell you, it is good to keep the conversation flowing, ebbing and flowing back forth, learn, grow, open your mind. And until next time, gold rings on you all.